With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. One of the hosts of the podcast. My name is Kyle Dabra. What's going on, everybody? I am back. The other half of the podcast, Kevin Valentin. Kyle, long time no see, Brody. I know, man. And you've missed some things over the last week or so. Um, I mean, if you guys hadn't known at this point, I basically pissed off an entire fan base with my Knicks take last week. <laughs> uh, you know, they got mad about the fact that They've been largely irrelevant throughout most of my lifetime, but they thought that I was raining on their parade. And, you know, when I guess in their eyes, you know, they thought I was wrong. But I mean, the fact remains that, you know, look, you know, not to mean to rain on their parade, but I don't remember the Knicks having any sort of championship parade in my lifetime, you know, for winning an NBA championship. And it's only <clears> been 50 years since they've had one. So, you know, but what do I know? You know, I'm just some guy that just talks about sports all day. So, you know, it is what it is. But, um, Kevin, I, I do have to ask, um, there are some people that were wondering your update on the bees. Uh, so basically what had happened was my parents had left for the weekend to go hang out with some friends or whatever. And my brother still had work. Obviously I moved out. So my brother's home alone, but I took him to work and I had picked him up cause he doesn't drive. So as I drop him off, legitimately I'm pulling away and I call my parents like, Hey, just dropped off max, whatever. Like, you know, do you need me to bring anything to the house? You need to get groceries. And my mom's on the phone and she's like, you need to turn around and go get your brother. Mind you, I had just like exited the community. I was like rounding out of the block. And like, my mom is screaming, like, turn the car around, turn the car around. Like there's bees in the house. And typically when my mom talks while on the audio of my car, she tends to yell. So I can't really understand because it's so damn loud. So, of course, I'm sitting there. I'm just like, lower your voice. Stop panicking. Mind you, I'm driving. And she's like, you need to turn around. There are actual bees in the, in the, in the fucking house. So I, I fucking slam on the brake. Thankfully, no cars behind me. And I whip a fucking U-turn and whatever have you. Like, to make a long story short, basically, after we had spoken to the beekeeper the next day, there are times of the year in the state of Florida being March and October in which bees transition from colonies or they're looking for new homes or whatever. So the beekeeper kind of described it as like internal wars where they're fighting for a new home. So like different colonies are legitimately consistently battling with others to find a new place to live in which happened to be my parents fucking house. And everybody knows in Florida, you have like different like gaps, like on your roofs, like some for the, um, 
some for the the drainage like you know like the gutters and stuff and then you obviously have like different holes in different areas for ventilation whatever right they apparently all like suckered and fought within that specific area to the point where they had seeped into the walls of my parents house and they were completely infested into the wall 48 hours later skip over to tuesday there are no fucking bees in the house. There's no bees in the walls. They're all dead. They had basically killed each other fighting for this particular location. Because the beekeeper kind of did that, like, thermal imaging where they find the heat of the bees to kind of track where they were in the structure of the building or in the house. There were no bees anywhere. There were just dead bee carcasses all over the roof, all in front of my house or my parents' house, all on the pavement. So my parents are back in the house. My dad had to buy some product to pretty much like seal the hole in terms of like like a almost like a bee repellent, and then almost put like a a mesh wire or mesh like group of wires over top so they couldn't get in. But I mean, it was weird. My parents stood with me from Saturday at midnight, so basically crack of dawn Sunday all the way till this morning. So I was with my parents for about five full days in a two bedroom apartment. So it was odd. It was weird. But thankfully, you know, no major structural damage, no major bill for anything like that. So super thankful. So you didn't get like, you know, a cameo appearance from like Jerry Seinfeld. You remember from that B movie like 10, 15 years ago, you never like had one of those interactions with any of the bees in your house or anything like that. No, no, no. no. See, I'm not, I'm not a bug guy. I mean, again, you know, I always talk about how I'm from New York and I'm used to seeing a lot of things. I don't, I don't don't like nature, nature and me, not friends. So when I saw like all the bees in front of my brothers, like in front of the doorway, I basically was like smoke signaling from my car, like get in the car because I ain't coming to get you. (laughs) So it's been an eventful week for both of us. I pissed off the Knicks fans. Uh, The bees infested your parents' house. It's, it's been a pretty fun week to say the least, I guess. Right. I mean, to a certain extent, fun is one word you can use. Eventful is probably another one. But yeah, no, it's it's definitely been a while. I missed the podcast. It sucked not being able to record on Sunday, but my parents were in the entire office and so was my brother. So there was nowhere to record. And my parents were like out cold by like nine o'clock at night. So. Oh my God, that's early. That's early. Yeah. My parents. Jesus. Mind you, the Colts game was on. So I was watching it bit by bit with like my dad, but he kind of stood up to like halftime, but it was kind of like. I'm going to bed. I feel that. Hey, bro, they got to get their sleep, you know? Exactly. I'm just happy to be back. That's all that matters to me. You ready to hit these topics, though? Hell yeah. All right. So the agenda is going to go as followed. Uh, We got some pretty solid games to go over in the slate of week eight games in the NFL. We're going to go over four games in particular. Uh, The first one that we're going to go over will be the Cowboys and the Vikings. That is going to be the Sunday night matchup for week eight. It's going to actually probably be one of the the better games to watch this weekend. Um, After that, we'll talk about the Pittsburgh Steelers going up against the Cleveland Browns. It's a big AFC North battle that's going to feature two teams that are really kind of of fighting it out for that second spot in the AFC North behind the Baltimore Ravens at this current moment in time. But that'll definitely be a fun topic of conversation. After that, we'll talk about the Titans and the Colts, kind of similar to these these divisional matchups that really kind of be, they kind of seem to be a focal point of week eight in particular. You know, you got the Titans and the Colts going back and forth in a huge AFC South battle. The Titans do have the advantage as far as their record is concerned, but the Colts have been surging of late. So that'll definitely be a fun topic of conversation. After that, we'll wrap up our NFL 
segments with the Buccaneers going on the road to face the Saints. Uh, the Saints are coming off of a Monday night win against the Seattle Seahawks last week. And the Bucs, they've really been on a roll the last couple of weeks. Uh, last week, they played the Chicago Bears, where they absolutely annihilated the Bears by the score of 38-3. to So that'll round out the NFL topics. After that, we'll transition into some NBA discussions. Uh, we're going to focus on the Chicago Bulls. They're currently playing the New York Knicks right now. But we're going to talk about just the excitement level for the Chicago team. They brought in some key acquisitions for free agents this offseason with Lonzo Ball, DeMar DeRozan, Alex Caruso, to go along with Nikola Vucevic and Zach Levine. And it does seem like that Chicago is going to make some noise this year, and we'll kind of dive into that topic a little bit further as we get to that part of the episode. After that, we'll talk about Golden State. Golden State's off to a very hot start. They've started 4-0 to start the season. They've beaten some quality teams so far in the Lakers and the Clippers, and we'll just talk about what, what our expectations are for the Warriors this year. That's even despite with Klay Thompson being out for the foreseeable future as he recovers from his Achilles tear. And then after that, we'll round out the episode with a quick discussion about the World Series. As it currently stands, the series is tied at 1-1. Atlanta won game one. And then in game two, Houston tied up the series with a pretty solid win at home. The series goes to Atlanta for games three, four, and five. And if there are any games that are needed after that, the series will transition back to Houston for games six and seven. But that is the topics that we have for you guys with this episode so let's not waste any more time and let's dive into the episode kevin can you do me a favor real sec real quick yeah sure can you slide to your right there you go you were just out of frame for a second sorry about that boys no you're good but like i said we'll start with the nfl matchups for week eight and really the biggest one that we think is going to be the first topic of discussion will be the Cowboys and the Vikings. So this is going to be the Sunday night matchup. Like I mentioned, the Cowboys have been one of the more phenomenal teams to speak as far as not only in the NFC, but in the NFL as well. They've really been bolstered by just offensively what they've been able to put out as far as Ezekiel Elliott, Tony Pollard, Dak Prescott. And then when you look at receivers like Amari Cooper, and CeeDee Lamb, they're all having fantastic years, and it's resulting in wins to a larger extent as well. But the Vikings have been on a surge. They started out the season 0-3, but they've been on a pretty solid win streak of late. We've seen Kirk Cousins have a pretty solid year, despite not, of a, not a lot of attention being paid toward him so far this year. But really, the, the matchup kind of speaks for itself. You have the Cowboys, who are just on a roll at this point, and then you got the Vikings, who... Of late, they've been playing some pretty solid football. So, Kevin, I'll pose the question to you. With the Cowboys and the Vikings squaring off in this Sunday night matchup, which quarterback are you taking in this matchup and why? So, it's a little weird for me, and here's why. Both teams, at least offensively, are very similar in a lot of ways. Quarterback play has been absolutely stellar. Both running backs, well, when Dalvin is healthy, can be considered a top five grouping in terms of out of the top backs in the league they could be in the top five category i apologize um they have a great group of a receiving core obviously you know headlined in dallas cd lamb and amari cooper and then on the minnesota side you have justin jefferson and obviously uh, adam thielen 
And then you have good offensive line play. But here's where it differs. The Dallas Cowboys have had exceptional offensive line play to where they are absolutely pretty much dominating the line of scrimmage in almost every single matchup that they've had, whether that be run blocking or pass blocking. And I feel that that makes a very big difference here. I mean, the record speaks in and of itself. Both defenses in terms of statistically aren't exactly great. The only great factor on Dallas's defense is, you know, Trayvon Diggs because he leads the league in interceptions. But I'm probably going to give this edge toward Dallas because Dallas is on a roll. They have played some pretty good teams out there. They have also played some bad teams. Let's not, you know, take that away. But I just think that the combination of Ezekiel Elliott and Dak Prescott and obviously the offensive line are just going to be pretty much too much for the weakened defensive scheme that is the Minnesota Vikings. I feel like the the, the uh, Cowboys are going to get up and down the field as they please. They're going to control time of possession. And I feel that, you know, they're just going to continue their success running the football. So um, unless Kirk Cousins is able to dissect the holes and the coverages that Dallas designs for them, maybe keeping the ball away from Trayvon, uh, Trayvon Diggs, I don't necessarily know exactly how that is going to pan out. But I definitely got a deck with the edge to this one. I don't have a particular score, but uh, I do think this is going to be a really good game, though. No, I completely agree. And the way that I see this game kind of playing out is twofold. So like you mentioned with the offensive line, I think that Dallas is going to win that offensive line matchup. And they've been doing that consistently throughout the entire year. And the reason why I think that's always important is because it always starts up in the trenches because it opens up run lanes for the running backs. And it also gives time for the quarterback to be able to throw the ball to his receivers. And with the way that Dallas has been playing, not just the last game or two, but really the entire season so far, they've had great offensive success. It is due to part what that offensive line has been able to give to Ezekiel Elliott, Tony Pollard and Dak Prescott, just because some of the run lanes that this offensive line is giving, I mean, these holes are at least a man, a man and a half wide. And literally, Tony Pollard or Zeke Elliott, they don't even really have to make cuts on their runs. They could literally just run straight through the A, B, or C gap without any sort of resistance whatsoever from the defense. When it comes to Dak, Dak is having just a phenomenal year, not only sitting in the pocket, but being able to extend plays with his feet, and he's at really at the top of the MVP discussion as well. And it just goes, it really kind of goes to the point of just how successful that the Cowboys have been this season. You know, it's really a far cry from last year. Granted, you know, Dak got hurt with that major ankle injury that he suffered against the Giants. But he has really stepped up his game from last season. And he's just taken it to a whole new level. And when I look at the Vikings, though, I have to respect what the Vikings have done of late. And I have to kind of... Sp- specifically focus on Kirk Cousins. You know, Kirk Cousins has been an up-and-down quarterback, to say the least, in his NFL career at this point. You know, there have been times where he's looked really good, you know, where he's, you know, throwing 30, 35 touchdowns, but there have been times where he's just really turnover-prone and he will throw a lot of interceptions. This year in particular, I think he's having a phenomenal year. He has 13 touchdowns to two interceptions, and he's got some great options to throw to. Justin Jefferson... Adam Thielen, uh, this kid Osborne that got the game-winning touchdown against Carolina. You know, he has some decent playmakers to throw to. And I think offensively, the Vikings are going to be in it with the Cowboys. I just think that the Cowboys, their offense is just a little bit too explosive for the Vikings to handle in this game. I think Dak 
is going to have the edge over Kirk in this game. I think Dak could go out there and throw for potentially 300, 350 yards passing. I wouldn't be surprised if he throws three touchdowns. I wouldn't be surprised if it's like C.D. Lamb getting one or two, Amari Cooper, maybe even Dalton Schultz as well, just because that really seems to be his favorite target as far as his tight ends go. And I think Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard, they're going to have great games on the ground as well. So I think this is going to be a high-scoring affair. I think this is just a matchup where I think both defenses are just going to give up points like Oprah used to do back in the day when she gave out free cars. Like, all right, this team gets a touchdown. This team gets a touchdown. It's going to be back and forth the entire game in that regard. But I'm going to give the edge to the Cowboys. I think they win this one by a touchdown. I have the score 34 to 27. And I think the Cowboys, they just kind of extend their winning ways. And even though that the Vikings, I have them losing this game, I think it's going to be a valiant effort. I think it's just going to be a little bit short for this one uh, against the Cowboys, though. It's funny because we've been talking about the Vikings are just so much better than their record. It just so happens. They have a pretty tough schedule. And, I mean, obviously they've played the Vikings – I mean, excuse me, the Cowboys and the Seahawks. And this is when the Seahawks had everybody healthy and everybody thought that they were going to continue to run with the NFC West. Um, And a couple of other teams, they played the Bengals early on and everybody thought that the Bengals, that was kind of like a fluke win for them, but they ended up leading the AFC North. And and, and again, other teams. But it just – it just goes to show how competitive this league really is. And it goes to show like these games, just because they're close, doesn't necessarily mean that uh, a team is having an off day. It could just mean that both teams are playing at a very high level and it just comes down to, to one play or one turnover. And um, this is what makes me love the NFL, man. These, these teams are going at it for their seasons, obviously, um, you know, Dallas being five and one Minnesota being three and three coming off of their bye. Um, not that it's going to be make or break for either, but obviously, you know, Minnesota would like to come out of here with a win to kind of put them above 500, and Dallas would like to keep up with the surging NFC as a conference. So both teams have a lot to keep up playing for. It's not really one of those, like, I don't really care if we win. It doesn't really matter. So uh, definitely not a, uh, a useless game, at least in my opinion. No, I agree. But uh, with that said, we'll transition into our next game, and it is going to be one of the biggest division rivalries that we will see this week that will feature the Pittsburgh Steelers going up against the Cleveland Browns. Just to kind of give you guys an update on where these teams currently stand. The Steelers are coming off of a win two weeks ago against the Seattle Seahawks, where they beat them by the score of 23 to 20 in overtime. And then with the Browns, the Browns are currently sitting at four and three, and they had a win over the Denver Broncos last week. And, even though that they did win that game. Uh, Baker did not play in that game. He's currently dealing with a shoulder shoulder injury that continues to linger throughout the season. And to kind of dive in on Baker for a second, you know, Baker is still dealing with that shoulder injury. He is limited in practice, and it could be a game-time decision when it comes down to it if we see Baker not on the field for this game. So, Kevin, when you take it to the account of Baker's injuries, And when you look at the fact that both teams, they found a way to win some games of late. And with the Ravens still kind of holding that number one spot in the AFC North, how do you see this AFC North battle going between the Steelers and the Browns this week? Well, every game in the AFC North hasn't necessarily been a a, a really tight one. The Bengals kind of ran away with both games against the Ravens. Obviously, the Steelers have been struggling all year. 
the Browns are up and down, but are also one of the most injured teams in the NFL in terms of their starters. I mean, you had Odell, Jarvis, Nick Chubb, um, Kareem Hunt, now Baker Mayfield. So, I mean, like you, you pretty much have all of their best players hitting the IR at some point or dealing with something of significance. And then you go and you look at the uh, – am I missing a team here? Uh, Baltimore, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, Cleveland. No, I said them all. Um, and then you go and you look at Pittsburgh, and it's like, well, they're just struggling. And I mean, like overall, their defense is obviously one of the more dominant defenses in the league in terms of getting to the quarterback and finding ways to create turnovers. Not that they're, you know, one of the highest turnover teams in the league like the Colts are, but um, they find a way to make, you know, game changing plays when it matters the most. So I'm really looking at this game like, okay, can Baker, is is Baker playing? Is Nick playing? Is Odell going to be targeted? And then when you look at the offensive side of the ball for Pittsburgh, is Ben going to play like a 50 year old quarterback? Are they going to be able to run the ball? Is the offensive line going to be able to stop Miles Garrett? You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of question marks into this game. So it's hard for me to definitively go in here and pick a winner or even give a reason as to why I think one is going to. Pittsburgh gets Deontay Johnson back, plus one for Pittsburgh. But Nick Chubb could end up coming back for Cleveland. Another plus one for, for fucking Cleveland. I don't necessarily know. I think the only deciding factor that's going to lead me to lean towards Pittsburgh is if Baker plays or not. I don't know if Case Keenum can can go out there and lead this team the way that it's constructed right now with all of the injuries that they're dealing with um, in, into a victory. And, I mean, I don't necessarily know who's home. I know that that makes a difference as well. Who's home, by the way? Uh, the Cleveland's at home. So that, that definitely plays into fact uh, of who we believe could come out of this game. But, I mean, at the end of the day, in order for Pittsburgh to be successful, the offensive line's got to play better. Ben's got to realize it's not, you know, deep ball or bust like he's pretty much done his entire career. And then you go, you got to keep the turnovers to a minimum because we all know that Miles Garrett is a force to deal with and, and you know, can get to the quarterback pretty much at will. Um, and then the secondary of Cleveland is no joke either. So I'm leaning towards Pittsburgh just because Baker is a big question mark. But if Baker plays, I can see this being an even, an even, uh, an even flip. Okay. So I'm going to give the edge to the Steelers, and here's why. So when I look at this game as a whole, it, it really is just defined by the amount of injuries that both teams are really going through at this current moment in time. But the main injury for me that I'm focusing on is Baker. And Baker's been dealing with that shoulder issue for weeks on on end at this point. And I just don't know how viable he's going to be, even if he does play in this game. And the one thing that the Steelers have been very good this season is bring pressure against opposing quarterbacks. And we saw that take place against Geno Smith and the Seahawks. Granted, the Seahawks aren't that good of a team, but still, be able to get four or five sacks in that game against Seattle, I think that was an impressive performance from from the Steelers' defense. And when I look into this matchup that when they faced the Browns this week, granted, you know, they do get Deontay Johnson back. They did lose Juju Smith-Schuster for the year. But when I look at the team as a whole, they're just dealing with less injuries at the key positions that really matter. And when I look at the Browns, the Browns are dealing with issues with Jarvis Landry is questionable for this game. We don't know if Nick Chubb is going to be 100% in this game. Even if he does play, he's probably only going to be about 85 maybe 90% on what he's typically being as far as being 100% healthy. And with Baker, you know, it's just it, it comes down to injuries. And I really think this, this game is just defined by 
how many injuries both teams are currently going through. But I think with the Steelers, they're dealing with a less amount of injuries that really impact the most important position, which is the quarterback. Even though that Big Ben, he looks like to be on his last leg this year. He's not that hurt compared to Baker. Baker is really dealing with that shoulder issue. And I think it's going to hinder him, even if he does play in this game. You know, I think Baker's going to be dealing with that for the rest of the year and probably is going to get some sort of off-season surgery after the season is over with. But when it comes to this game in particular, I'm going to give the edge to the Steelers. I just think they're the healthier team at this point. And granted, we're only in October. And if teams are dealing with injuries this badly, like the Browns are, it's going to be tough for the Browns to really be able to get any sort of rhythm as far as getting wins are concerned. But I'm going to say that the Steelers... They pull this one out on the road. I think it's going to be a relatively close game. I don't think both teams are going to crack 30 points. I think this is going to be team. Uh, this is going to be a game that's going to be mostly held in the 20s. I'm going to say the Steelers win this one like 24 to 20. I think this is one of those grimy, gritty AFC North battles that's going to take place. But I think the Steelers are going to get the edge. And it's simply just because I think the Steelers are a healthier team at this point. So, I mean, just to, just to express to you guys the significance of Baker's injury, we're not talking about a sprain. We're not talking about, a, you know, like a, a slight tear or maybe like a, a contusion in the shoulder. The doctors are saying that it's a torn labrum. It's just a matter of how torn it's going to be by the end of the year if he can make it. Granted, it is his non-throwing shoulder, but you can continue to see how it's affecting him in and out of these games because he has said on multiple occasions – it's come out in the game, whether that's a hit, throwing a block, um, you know what I'm saying, a, a play breaking down and him getting, getting sacked. I mean, it, it really depends. But at, at the overall context of this, like when you really break it down, this is going to affect him not only for the rest of the season, but God knows how long um, just in his personal life. I mean, God, I can't even imagine how what you're dealing with just having a, a torn labrum sitting in your shoulder blade like, well, I can't really do much with this arm. So um, the doctors are saying from what we're understanding in terms of media outlets and reports that if he continues to get injured or if he continues to reseparate it, they're going to – I have like quadruple or whatever the number is after hiccups. I'll have like five or six in a row to where like I feel like I can't breathe. Um, sorry about that. But the doctors are saying that they may just shut Baker down for the year if he continues to get hurt. So that's something to keep an eye on. But once again – it is going to be a very good game, and I agree with Kyle. It's going to be a very gritty AFC North game. Oh, yeah. And, you know, to kind of focus on the, the divisional matchups that really kind of seem to be highlighted in all of Week 8 in the NFL, we're going to move on to our third game of discussion, which is going to feature the Tennessee Titans and the Indianapolis Colts. So to kind of give you guys a standing on where both teams are currently, the Tennessee Titans are currently at 5-2 and two on the season. The Titans have really been on a good roll the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, they beat the Bills in one of the best Monday night games that we've seen all year. And then they followed it up with a pretty stellar performance against the Kansas City Chiefs last week. And then to focus on the Indianapolis Colts, the Colts are currently sitting at three and four. But the Colts have found some ways to win some games recently. Last week, they beat the 49ers in what was just one of the most rainiest games that I've seen all year. But they were able to get the win on the road in San Francisco. And as it currently stands, they are the second place team in the AFC South behind the Titans, who are currently in first place. So, Kevin, to kick this to you, 
This is a big AFC South battle in week eight. How do you see this game playing out and why? So obviously I have a lot riding on this game as a Colts fan, but of course, as a football fan, you really look at this and you say, Oh my God, the, 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 the league's top two rushing leaders in Derek Henry and Jonathan Taylor are going to go head to head. The offensive line for the Colts has been injured literally the entire year from Quentin Nelson to Braden Smith to the benching of Mark Galowski and then the emergence of Eric Reed. I mean, there have been times that, you know, Eric Fisher was even playing like crap and he missed the first two games of the year as well. So, again, the Colts have had an injury bug like a lot of teams. But, of course, as a Colts fan, I'm just absolutely livid because we have the potential to be great. And then the Titans, on the other hand, have been dealing with injuries on their side too. Nothing too significant in terms of, you know, coming up this week. But A.J. Brown has missed time. Julio Jones has missed time. And then, of course, Bud Dupree was coming off of an ACL injury and he's just getting back into game shape. And then I believe the, the Titans lost one of their star offensive linemen for the year. T- Taylor, um, well, well, Taylor Juan had the uh, – he had the concussion a couple weeks back. I don't know who yeah, had the somebody, – Somebody's hurt like bad for the Titans in terms of their offensive line. And I can't remember for who it, uh, who it is at the moment for whatever reason. But overall, both teams got a lot to play for. Carson Wentz has been playing good. I mean, Ryan Tannehill is coming off of the best game of the season thus far, absolutely annihilating the Chiefs. Derrick Henry continues to be a monster. And then obviously the Colts defense, Darius Leonard, the maniac himself, has literally been responsible or a part of eight turnovers out of 16 in which the Colts are tied uh, with the Buffalo Bills for the NFL's league-leading uh, you know, turnover, uh, turnover count. So our defense is solid. Their offense is solid. Their defense is questionable, but they did perform in- insanely last week against Pat Mahomes. And then, like I said, Carson Wentz, has been playing really good, 11 touchdowns, one interception. The emergence of Michael Pittman Jr. has been absolutely incredible. And then the dominating performance of Jonathan Taylor. We are getting Braden Smith back. Quentin Nelson was back last week. So the offensive line is finally fully reloaded. We have a healthy running back backfield with Jordan Wilkins. T.Y. Hilton is questionable with the thigh contusion, if not the quad contusion, whatever they're going to call that. Um, and our secondary looks pretty solid right now. Rocky Asin is coming back. Xavier Rhodes is going to play. Obviously, we lost Julian Blackman for the season, but we are making do with what it is that we have. So I think that this is probably going to be one of the most healthy games the Colts have had all year. And uh, I'm just excited to see it, you know, be the good game that I know it can be. So I think that the Colts are going to actually lose this game just because I don't necessarily see us having the capabilities to stop Derrick Henry, A.J. Brown, and Julio Jones. Pat, excuse me, uh, Ryan Tannehill showed, okay, you're going to stack the box. You're going to put eight or nine in the box. I'm going to beat you with my arm and my legs. We all know that people sleep and shit on Ryan Tannehill because he has a game where he'll have maybe 125 yards because Derrick Henry has basically 200 of them by himself. Or a day where Ryan Tannehill has two interceptions and no touchdowns. Or a day where he has a bad passer rating or a bad completion percentage, whatever. I feel like Ryan Tannehill is one of the most quick-to-judge quarterbacks in the NFL because he has a game where he's trash and it's like, oh my God, he sucks. You should have never gave him a hundred million dollars. And then there's a game where he lights you up for 353 scores and then rushes for a touchdown. And you're like, wait, is Ryan Tannehill actually like an elite or like, you know, comparable quarterback or competent, should I say? So I feel like if we're able to limit Derek, I feel like Ryan's going to light it up in the air like he showed last week. However, the difference is our defense is significantly better than the Chiefs. So I feel like we'll be able to, you know, give them a little bit more of an issue. Our problem is we're one of the worst teams in rushing the passer. So 
Not to mention Ryan Tannehill is great at, uh, you know, making plays out of nothing and kind of escaping out of pressure. So we'll see what happens. But I, I stand by what I said. I see the Titans winning this game by about seven points, maybe around the score of, I don't know, 28-21, something of that magnitude. I just I, – I see that, you know, I feel like in this game, uh, Carson Wentz has probably one of his worst games of the year in terms of struggling. I feel like they're going to make adjustments. And it's pretty much all on how Jonathan Taylor is going to be able to run the football. This is a tricky one for me because I think both teams are going to have good games, respectively. I just think that the main points of focus in this game that I'm paying attention to are the defenses. Because let's start with the Colts defense. And obviously, the main factors that you have to take into account when it comes to Tennessee's offense is being able to slow down Derrick Henry and just the beast that he is with running the football. Now, Casey was able to contain him pretty well last week. But the fact of the matter is, is that they didn't need him to have 100, 150 yards rushing because Ryan Tannenhill was able to light up that Casey secondary last week. So I think Indianapolis, I think their main point of emphasis is going to be able to slow down Derrick Henry. But the fact of the matter is, or the question that I should ask, is whether or not that can their secondary hold up against Ryan Tannenhill and the wideouts that Tennessee currently has. A.J. Brown had a phenomenal game against Kansas City last week. Julio Jones, I don't know if he's dealing with some sort of injury. I'm not 100% sure if he's going to play in this game or not, but if he does, that is going to be a matchup nightmare for the Colts defense to contend with. And look, it's like you mentioned with Ryan Tannehill, Kevin. You know, he'll have these games where he looks pedestrian at best. And then there are games where he looks like he's a Pro Bowl quarterback. And I think in this game in particular, I think the Colts defense is going to be able to slow down Derrick Henry because I think they're just going to stack the box and they're going to focus on, well, if Tennessee beats us, it's not going to be because of Derrick Henry. It's going to be because Ryan Tannehill lights us up. And we've seen that secondary with the Colts get torched this year a few times already. We saw it against Lamar Jackson famously in that Monday night matchup just a few weeks back. That was despite the fact that I thought the Colts offensively played one of their best games of the year. It's just that their defense was faced with some injuries in that game, and they really compromised on the back end of the defense, and that's why they ended up losing that game. And when I see this game playing out, I think that that Colts secondary is going to have some issues if they just can't hold up against A.J. Brown and Julio Jones back there. And then when it comes to the Colts offense going up against Tennessee's defense, I'm still of the mindset that Tennessee's defense is a subpar defense. But I have to give them respect on what they were able to do against Kansas City last week. They held Patrick Mahomes and that Chiefs offense to the lowest point total offensively that they've ever had with Patrick Mahomes at the starting quarterback spot to three points. The Chiefs could not get any sort of rhythm going whatsoever in that matchup. And you got to give that Titans defense a lot of credit. They were able to make Patrick Mahomes uncomfortable the entire game. He couldn't hit Travis Kelsey or Tyreek Hill consistently. And those defensive stops gave Tennessee more than enough time and enough room to be able to make plays to put points up on the board. And, you know, that's why the Titans were so effective against Kansas City last week. But when it comes to this game in particular, I'm going to favor the Titans in this one just because I think they did a phenomenal job to get Patrick Mahomes off of his game last week. And I think it's going to be more of the same. I, th- I think they're going to be able to get some pressure on Carson, despite the fact that, like you mentioned, the Colts offensive line is probably the healthiest that they've been at this point in the season. But I think that despite what 
that defense could do against the Colts. I still think that the that Tennessee is going to be able to give up some points here, but I just think that what Ryan Tannehill is going to present to the Colts defense, I think that he's going to be able to overpower that Colts secondary. And I do think this is going to be a game where I have it in the twenties. I think the the Titans they win this one like twenty seven to like twenty one. This could even be a game where it's only decided by a field goal, like 27-24 when it's all said and done. But I just think that Tennessee is the better team at this point in the season. And just look, look if Derrick Henry really goes off in this game, then I think Tennessee wins this one by possibly 10 points or more. But I think the Colts defense is going to be able to contain them. I think Carson's going to have a good enough game to keep it close. But I'm going to give the edge to the Titans in this one. Like I said, 27-24, 27-21. But if Derrick Henry really pops off in this game, this could be a game where the Titans get above 30 points and win by 10 points or more. So I'm going to pick the Titans in this matchup. Well, let's remember. Let's just backtrack a couple of weeks. The last time we played each other, which I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, was week three or week two. Um, Carson Wentz had both sprained ankles. So that was definitely week three because that was after the L.A. game where he rolled it on an Aaron Donald uh, quarterback rush. So I'm looking at this and I'm saying – Carson's on a roll. The offensive line is healthy. We want redemption because we always play the Titans very aggressively. So I think it's going to be a very close game. And again, the reason I'm leaning towards the Titans is because Derrick Henry is legitimately a game-changing player to the magnitude of you hand this man the ball, he doesn't necessarily have to drag three or four bodies to get 10 yards. He can just bust through a hole and go for 88 in a, in a foot race. So I'm really looking at this saying Derrick Henry is truly one of those people that can do it in pretty much all facets of the game. Short yardage, um, obviously breakaway speed, and then his ability to just be physical. So you just look at it and you're like, how are we going to force a way to get this man to slow down or cause him to make a turnover? And it's just, it looks like an, an impossible task to a certain extent. So that's another reason, like I said, why I just kind of lean towards um, – giving Tennessee this edge because we don't necessarily have a dominating factor of that degree. Does that take away from the confidence that I have that Jonathan Taylor is going to have a good game or anything of that? No. But again, we don't have a Derrick Henry. And I know that for a fact. Not many teams do have a player that can go out there and go win a game on their back. So um, I expect a good one. I look forward to the rematch and I, I want to see what coach has dialed up offensively because we just look absolutely atrocious with Carson being completely limited and almost completely immobilized with two sprained ankles. But I think like in this game in particular, I think if, if the Colts played this one smart, you know, they had their film session earlier in the week. And I think they're going to take some of the things that Casey did well against Tennessee's offense and being able to contain Derrick Henry the way that they did. I mean, you go to, you go two weeks back, the Titans just absolutely rolled over that Bills defense. And Derrick Henry was the man on a mission the entire night. And that's going up against one of the best defenses in the entire league. So I'm not saying that the Colts are just going to get run over by Derrick Henry in this matchup. I think it's actually going to be kind of similar to what happened with KC. I could see Derrick Henry possibly getting maybe 100 yards rushing. It's just whether or not that he breaks into like that, that 125 that 150 range. If I agree. Bringing, if he breaks into that like yard total, yeah, the, it, it could be a long day for not only the Colts defense, but the Colts as a team. And I think despite the fact that I think the Colts are actually a pretty decent team and they have shown me over the last couple of weeks 
that they could be a competitor in the AFC South as long as they're healthy. And that's really kind of been the main point that we've seen this year with the Colts is that just, dude, no matter how good this team can be, it's just, man, these injuries just hit at the worst times. Just like you said, Julian Blackman had the torn Achilles in practice. Just What was it, about a week ago? Week and a half ago? Yeah, yeah, like Tuesday, last Tuesday. So, you know, and then Carson with the double ankle issue. And when Nelson hit the IR. And, 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 and Paris Campbell. Out for the oh, don't even future. don't 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 get me started it, with it, that it, bullshit. It, it, it's just I do think that the Colts are a good team, and I think Carson's stats actually reflect that, the, despite the fact of how many injuries that they've had as a team. But I think this is just one of those years when, when it's all said and done, man, when they had all the pieces there, they're a good team. It's just yeah. when the injuries hit, that's just too big of a hurdle to overcome, and you know. It's maybe a year where they kind of reflect on it. Granted, you know, I'm always saying this like in week eight, but it's just, it seems to be like that season, like where it's just, man, it's just the injury bug cannot get out of their way. And, I, you know, it, I, I've said it before, you know, injuries can derail an entire season or it literally, can, or it can throw it into flux, you know, where you just, you don't know it's up one week, it's down the next week. But, you know, I still think despite the amount of injuries that the Colts have as a team, I still think they're going to be able to make this game a competitive one. It's an AFC South battle. These divisional games are always tough. You know, you play these teams twice a year, so you know them probably better than anybody else. And even though that I think the Colts are going to keep this close, I just, I think the Titans just, they're just a better team. O- offensively, they're a better team. Defensively, I, I would say the, Col- the Colts have the edge. But it's just, the Colts outside of maybe Jonathan Taylor and maybe you could say Carson Wentz. They just don't have that X factor like Derrick Henry is, you know, yeah. on Tennessee side of the ball. But I think it's going to be a phenomenal game, though. I, I think this is going to be one of the best games of Week 8 when it's all said and done, though. I look forward to it, definitely. I mean, that kind of pushes us to the last NFL segment of this afternoon or evening. I, I don't know why I said afternoon. Holy shit, what is wrong with me? You know what? You you take the segment. I thought I had it, and then you know, like my brain went. You sure? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, like Kevin mentioned, this will be the last game that we focus on uh, in the NFL for Week Eight, and that is going to be the Tampa Bay Buccaneers going up against the New Orleans Saints. So, to k- give you guys uh, an update on where these teams currently stand, uh, the Buccaneers they are currently six and one, and just on an absolute roll after annihilating the Chicago Bears. And I'm saying that just to be 100% accurate. It was a 38-3 to beatdown. I mean, the game was out of hand at halftime when the Bucs were up 35-3. to And with the Bucs at a 6-1 record, they're currently at the top of the NFC South. To transition to the New Orleans Saints, the New Orleans Saints are currently in second place in the NFC South. They had a pretty solid road win against the Seattle Seahawks on Monday Night Football in Week 7. And despite the fact that they lost Drew Brees this offseason to retirement, I think that Jameis Winston has filled in admirably for this team. And they've been able to pull off some good wins. But really, the biggest X factor that I've seen from the Saints so far this year is Alvin Kamara. The guy is just an absolute unit, not only with running the football, but in the passing game as well. He absolutely torched Seattle last week in the passing game and just the way that they're able to utilize him it is really kind of a sight to behold as far as New Orleans goes in this case but Kevin I'm going to kick the question to you in this NFC South battle between the Buccaneers and the Saints who do you have winning this one and why um 
a silly question, and I know it sounds rude, but it's it's Tampa. It's going to be Tampa all day. I mean, I get it. The Saints defense has reloaded with a lot of people coming back from injuries like K1 Alexander and then obviously uh, DeMarco Davis and all of those boys. So, I mean, good for them. (laughs) But when it comes to the matter of making sure that you stop Alvin Kamara, what is his position? Running back. What are the Bucks good at on defense? Stopping the run. Again, you did say that you have to worry about Alvin Kamara coming out of the backfield, but I believe that the linebacking core of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers is probably the best suitable matchup for them because they have Levante David, because they have Devin White, and their ability to cover um, some receivers and then running backs out of the backfield is a, is a very incredible talent. I mean, I mean, you look at them and you just say, wow, they can do it all. They're the full package. They can hit. They can tackle. They can stop the rush. They can pass coverage. So I think that the, the, the Bucks are up for the task. I really do. And then you go and flip it to the Bucks' offense. I just don't see how the New Orleans Saints are going to be able to stop the, the, the firepower that's just clicking right now. Mike Evans had three touchdowns last week. I mean, I, I, I get it. It was the Bears. But do the Saints have somebody that can go and lock him down other than Marshawn Lattimore, who's not having the greatest season in the world? I don't know. And then, I mean, hey, you're looking at it and you say, okay, you stop Mike Evans. Cool. You got Antonio Brown. <laughs> you got Chris Godwin. Rob Gronkowski was practicing lightly this week. I don't know if he's playing. So I'm, I'm just looking at it overall, and I just see matchups and mismatches throughout the freaking setup. And I'm just like, oh, okay, well then, cool. I think the Bucks are just going to absolutely dominate. And I don't think Jameis is going to have, you know, much to say. And, you know, is this game in Tampa? It's in New Orleans. So, you know. It's not like Tom Brady hasn't been able to win in the Dome. Obviously, he went into New Orleans, and he won in the postseason when it mattered most. Was it against a battered Drew Brees? Absolutely. But it's not like they're strangers to adversity and, you know, the environment that is New Orleans. So I'm just looking at this, and I see Tampa winning by, you know, two scores, whether that be 10 points or 14. I just don't see Tom Brady getting slowed down whatsoever by this Saints defense. I'm going to – I'm in complete agreement with you on this one. I think the Bucks roll in this one. I want to say that they win this one by, I want to say 10, maybe 14 points like you had it as well. Just because, look, you know, Tom may be 44 years old, but I mean, the guy is just an absolute machine at this point. And Kevin, I went to that Bucks bears game last week. And oh, that, you saw that, a good one. That, that game was over by halftime. I mean, there were points in time where Brady was just absolutely bored back there because Chicago didn't give him anything to really compete against him. And that was without Antonio Brown and Rob Gronkowski. You know, you saw Mike Evans have a career day. You know, three t- touchdowns. I believe Chris Goblin had a touchdown as well. Just despite the injuries that they have with Gronk and AB, I don't know if they're going to play in this game. I would kind of lean to the fact that they probably won't play in this game. Just the offense just kind of... They just find ways to keep on winning games. And not only that, just the powerhouse that they have in the backfield with Leonard Fournette and Ronald Jones, specifically Leonard Fournette. Not only is he great on the run, but he is great out of the backfield. Ever since that week one drop that he had, where it was a, a tip pass that led to an interception, he has really become a focal point, not only in the run game for them, but just the passing game. He, there might be games where he gets like five or six catches out of the backfield. So, that's going to present some issues for New Orleans. And I really think the only way that New Orleans is going to be able to keep this game close in any way, shape, or form is if they give pressure on Tom. And 
throughout the season so far, teams have been very rare to get Tom on the ground. I mean, Kevin, like they wore those white jerseys against the Bears last week. And I don't think Tom ever ended up on the ground. I don't think he even had a grass stain. So, you know, granted they're playing in a dome, they're playing on turf, but they're going to have to rough up Tom in some sort of way as far as getting pressure goes to keep this game close. Just because this Bucks offense, I mean, they put up 30 points like it's nothing. It's just routine for them at this point. And, you know, for the for the Saints, they have to find a way to keep the Bucks under 30 points because if they don't, I think the Saints, just, they don't really have that big of a shot in this game. Granted, you know, they have Jameis, and Jameis has had a pretty solid season so far. But going up against this Bucks defense, I think it's going to be tough sledding. And that's despite the fact that, you know, that secondary with Tampa is hurt. You know, we'll see whether or not that Richard Sherman plays in this game. He's coming off of a hamstring injury. You know, they got Jamel Dean back, but Sean Murphy Bunting still out with an injury. I think Antoine Winfield Jr. is back in the mix. So they're starting to round out that secondary a little bit better than they had a couple of weeks ago. And I really think the only way that they could possibly beat that Tampa defense is with Alvin Kamara out of the backfield in the passing game. Because I think in the ground game, I think he's probably going to get like 30, 40 yards rushing just because they know how effective that Tampa run defense is. So when I look at the the scenario that's presented in front of the Saints, I think it's just a mountain ahead of them. And I just think that the odds are stacked against them. I think the Bucks win this one handily. I have this one 30 to 17. I think Tom could potentially throw three touchdowns in this game. I mean, if they get over 30, he could potentially throw for four touchdowns. He's already off to a very hot start. And unless the Saints can bring any sort of pressure as far as getting him not only to throw the ball away, but to get sacks on him as well, I don't really see a way that the Saints are going to be able to keep this one competitive. I just think the Bucs roll and, you know, the Bucs would move to seven and one on the season and then the Saints would fall back to four and three on the season. But for the Saints, th- this really kind of means everything for them because if they don't win this game, you get pretty much right off the NFC South at this point in the season. I know we would only be eight games in, but I don't see any other team that could really compete with the Bucks outside of the Saints. And if they lose this one, you pretty much hand the division to Tampa at that point. Yeah, I don't think it's close. I mean, when it comes to a divisional like upscaling or trying to make a comparison as to what team can really level or match up good against the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the fact that New Orleans is in the conversation is just hysterical because they don't match up well whatsoever. I mean, at, at any position, realistically. So I just sit here and I say, well, I really do think that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are one of the best teams in the NFC, but... I mean, we'll see what happens. It's a divisional game. Anything can happen. I mean, it's the NFL, for God's sake. So I'm not going to sit here and say it's completely impossible. But, you know, um, I just really don't see Jameis playing well against his old team. And, you know, I just, I don't know. I don't really have much faith in in anybody being able to touch Tom outside of Cameron Jordan, who I would assume Bruce Arians is going to make sure is either doubled or chip-blocked with a tight end or running back the entire night. Yeah, it's just... Or afternoon. It's just, you know the likelihood that the Saints win this game is very low. It's just the odds are stacked against them just because, I mean, dude, it's like I mentioned. It's like the only way I think they could really keep this game close is if they limit to Tampa's offense to under 30 points, keep them in possibly the low to mid-20s, and you got to be able to force some turnovers. If you force some turnovers against this Buccaneers offense, I think that definitely gives them a better chance to win this game. But 
the Bucks have been very good of late of not turning the ball over. And I think it's going to kind of be more of the same. I don't think Tom's had an interception since that Eagles game a couple weeks back. So, yeah, it's just, it's like a mountain that's presented in front of New Orleans as far as I'm concerned. I'm not saying that's impossible to overcome it. It's just that Tampa's really mowed teams down outside of maybe Dallas and LA through this point, through this point in the season. And I just don't think that, that the Saints are well-equipped to deal with Tampa's offense. And, you know, I think Tampa's defense is going to be more than capable of slowing down Jameis, Alvin Kamara. And I think their number one target, as far as their receivers go for the Saints, is Marcus Callaway. You know, not really what I would consider a top-tier wide receiver, but he is effective from time <laughs> to time. So, but, yeah, it's just I, I think the Bucks win this one handily. I just, I really don't see any other way that, New Orleans can keep this close unless they're able to get to Tom and force some turnovers. It's really the only way I see them winning this game. It's going to be, I, I can't even lie. It's not really good. I don't think it's going to be an interesting game. I think Tom kind of runs with it. Uh, the Bucks are just on a roll as, as a unit in terms of a team uh, th- as the season has just progressed. And like you said, Tom being 44 makes no damn difference. He leads the NFL in passing yards for God's sake. So um that's that, that to me that wraps up that 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 carousel. I mean, we kind of ended on on, on a game that's not really going to be close or favored for anything of that nature outside of the the Bucks winning. So, what's next, my guy? All right, you ready to transition into some NBA talk? Yeah, the Mavericks are looking to uh, solidify a win right now against the Spurs. So yeah, definitely. All right. So first things first, when it comes to the NBA, like we mentioned at the top of the episode, we are going to go over the Chicago Bulls. I did mention earlier that. You know, the, the Bulls were going up against the Knicks in one of the, the best early games of the season so far. Uh, the Bulls did fall to the Knicks by the score of 104 to 103. It was a very close game. So this was a game that I thought the Knicks were handily in control of. I remember seeing scores throughout our recording where they were up 10 to 15 points. But the Bulls definitely made it a game, but they do fall short in this game against the Knicks. So when I look at the Bulls as a whole, Currently, they're sitting at a 4-1 record. They definitely have a lot more excitement than they ha- they've had in years past, simply just because of the free agent acquisitions that they were able to bring into Chicago this past offseason. So you were able to sign DeMar DeRozan. You were able to sign Lonzo Ball. You were able to bring in Alex Caruso. These are some free agent acquisitions and some big-name players since really Jimmy Butler back in probably like the mid-2010s. And... I do think that for the first time in a couple of years that Chicago has a very good team to field as a whole. It go along with who you have on the team with Zach Levine, Nikola Vucevic. You take those guys and you throw them in with DeMar DeRozan, Lonzo Ball, Alex Caruso. It's a pretty solid group of guys to run a rotation with. And Kevin, I'm going to pose the question to you. With the Bulls having a resurgent season so far, starting out at 4-1, and one, on a scale of 1-10, to 10, just how exciting do you think this Bulls team can be this season? I mean, we talked about it yesterday when I was uh, driving from Isabel's house. Um, Alex Caruso might go around, and uh, I don't know if you guys remember that Doug McDermott conversation Kyle and I had a couple of months back where I was jokingly calling Doug McDermott the GOAT. But uh, Alex Caruso about to get his statue out there in front of the damn Bulls stadium because, yo, Caruso is nice. This Bulls team is nice. Granted, their first four games were were against 
very mediocre teams in the Pistons and then obviously facing off against the Pelicans and, and, and another team for whatever reason. I can't remember which one it is. The point of the matter is I think Chicago is meshing well together early. Everybody knows Zach Levine is the go-getter on that team, the best scorer on that team. Everybody knows that Nikola Vucevic is going to be the focal point inside the paint. He can extend the play or he can extend the court with his ability to hit big-time shots out on the perimeter. We all know that he can defend uh, on the block as well, averaging a couple of blocks a game, if not a block and some change. Uh, The biggest thing for me was seeing how DeMar was going to mesh, being a very ball-dominant individual, pretty much the majority of his career being the man in Toronto and then being the focal point in terms of the last couple of years being on San Antonio. And then Lonzo Ball kind of being a little bit of a journeyman early on in his life, and or should I say in his NBA career, starting off in L.A., getting traded to the Pelicans, now in his third NBA team, and I believe his fourth or fifth season. So you really look at this like, well, how are these personalities, how are these talents going to work together? And it seems like it's working out just fine. I mean, Lonzo Ball had a triple-double the other day. I, I believe Zach Levine has scored 30 if, once or twice already this season. DeMar DeRozan is doing what he needs to do. And then Vucevic is handling his business down in, in, in the paint. Caruso's been a great spark off the bench. And, of course, I mean, I, when you really look at it, I think this Bulls team has the potential to make some noise in the Eastern Conference. By no means am I saying they're going to go out there and be a top two, top three seed. I believe they could flirt around with that fourth or fifth seed if they continue the success that they're having. Um, I did see something, however, that my boy Kobe White is rumored to be uh, on the block in terms of being traded. So we will see what happens on that front. But the thing that lacks on the Bulls is, unfortunately, depth. There is not a lot of depth on this bench. There's not a lot of players here that you can see outside of the starting five or the six or seven-man rotation that's going to lead you to saying, well, what if Zach's in foul trouble? Or what if, uh, what if DeMar is hurt? And obviously, you know, the, the, those examples go on for everybody on that team. So letting go of Larry Markkinen did not seem to be a good, uh, a good move for the GM of the Bulls because that did make uh, a, a big – that could have been a big unit on, in, the, uh, in the second unit. I don't know why I just said unit twice. That could have been a big point on the second unit and or he could have definitely still started at the four spot. Because if I'm being honest, I don't know who the four is in Chicago. Patrick Williams. That was one of the draft picks that they that they got from Cleveland last year. Or is that someone that they actually drafted? I believe that's somebody that they drafted. So, you know, that, I, I feel like Larry Markkinen could have definitely been a big piece to kind of make this team that much better than it already is. But again, it's early on in the year. We're talking about game five, and they just lost to a very good Knicks team. So curious to see how the season progresses. Definitely not going to sit here and get overhyped and say that they're going to be one of the best teams in the league. But they're meshing very well together so far. And I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised. Or I'm kind of surprised. Well, if I had to say, like, on a scale of, like, 1 to 10 of, like, how excited I am with this team, I'd probably put it at a 7. I think a 7 is not a fair number to kind of put on this team as far as what they're going to be able to do as far as, as excitement goes. Uh, the reason being is that really ever since Jimmy Butler left the Bulls, they've really been a team that I would kind of consider as, like, an NBA purgatory. You know, they'll they'll have, like, some flash moments or, like, some flash highlights here and there. But they're, they weren't really a team that I would consider that was really vying for, you know, the top of the Eastern Conference in any way, shape, or form. But when you bring guys in like Lonzo Ball, Alex Caruso, and DeMar DeRozan, I, I want to specifically focus on the DeMar DeRozan uh, acquisition. I think that's a great veteran presence to have on the team simply because, look, he's one of the best mid-range players 
in this generation as far as just being able to knock down shots from 15, 20 feet out on a consistent basis. He is great for that. And I think that guidance that he can bring to a bunch of young players in Zach Levine, in Lonzo Ball, in Alex Caruso, I think that stuff is very invaluable. And it's just, it's one of those intangible factors that a veteran can bring to a really young team. And I think they could really rely on his veteran presence for the rest of his tenure with the Bulls. And I just think that when you pair DeMar DeRozan with Zach Levine, who seems to be the number one player of this team, you know, the amount of scoring options that the Bulls have, not only with DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine, but to go along with Lonzo Ball, Alex Caruso, like the scoring options are definitely going to be there for them. And Nikola Vucevic as well. I forgot to add him in as well. So I think the scoring options, I don't think that's going to be the issue. It's whether or not they're going to be able to hold up on the defensive side of the ball. And one of the troubling things that I've seen so far from the Bulls, despite the fact that they've got off to a 4-1 start, is in some of these games, they're getting out-rebounded in double digits. So to focus on the Knicks game that took place just a couple minutes ago, they got out-rebounded 49-37. to And there was another game earlier in the year where I believe they were playing against Toronto, and they also got out-rebounded in the double digits as well. So granted... Nikola Vucevic is a solid big man down low, but Kevin, it's like you mentioned, it's like at that power forward spot, they definitely seem to be lacking. And I'm, I don't want to denigrate what Patrick Williams can bring to the team. It's just, I wouldn't say that he's the best option at that four spot for them, you know, as far as being a lockdown four. So I think one of the things that we're going to see from this team is they're going to go through some growing pains. They are relatively young, but I think that this, uh, this team if they play their cards right and they they're able to pull off some some winning streaks here and there, I do think that this team can make the playoffs. I don't know how high they're going to get as far as seeding goes. If I had to throw a number out there as far as seeding goes, I'd probably say maybe like the seventh, maybe the eighth. They'd be in a play-in tournament situation in that scenario. But I do think that this is a team to be excited about if you're a Chicago Bulls fan. Granted. We're only five games into the year, so there's still a lot left to be determined with this team. But if the first five games are something to kind of judge where this team could go, I think this team could possibly make some noise throughout the season. And I do think that the best case scenario for this team is that, you know, they could finish as like a six seed in the East. You know, worst case, they just missed the playoffs in, in the play-in tournament. But I do think when it's all said and done, with the pieces that they brought in to go along with Zach Levine and Nikola Vucevic, I do think that this will be a playoff team when it's all said and done before we go into the playoffs. I mean, I'm excited to see the Bulls in winning fashion right now. Again, five games in, I'm not saying anything. The Bulls had an opportunity to get themselves into the playing tournament last year. It did not happen. So the fact that the Bulls are doing good, I feel like is good for the culture of the NBA. I mean, similar to the Knicks, Chicago is a team that really hasn't been in the postseason pretty much since Derrick Rose has been on this team or since Jimmy Butler has left. So mm-hmm. um, very curious to see how the Bulls carry out throughout the regular season. But, I mean, we're definitely not just going to sit here and harp on the Bulls. I know that there's another team or another focal point that we have to hit tonight. It is getting a little on the late side here as well. All right. So the next so the next segment that we're going to go over is going to be the Golden State. Did you get a notification on your phone? Yes, I did. The Mavericks beat the Spurs. We are three and uno. Oh, nice. Look at that. Because I, I remember you where were, I can get you, it. bro, you were concerned at first. They were down like two to like twelve, like the first uh, like eleven to one. 
excuse oh, me. Sorry, I was off by one point for each team. But still, you were very concerned, like you always are, when things aren't going your way early. But oh, I mean, uh, what 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 sports fan isn't? <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying, bro. You gotta let the play. You gotta let the game play out. You gotta be patient. These things take time. I mean, twenty eight to three didn't happen. You know, it didn't happen in the in the first quarter. It happened in the third, but they were able to make it happen. Like it happens. Leave leave me alone. Just just what's next? <laughs> All right. So up next, we're going to talk about the Golden State Warriors and. Golden State has just been off to a fantastic start this season. Currently, they're sitting at a 4-0 record that will be tested when they play against the Memphis Grizzlies tonight. Granted, you know, this will be coming out tomorrow, but I think you kind of get the point that I'm making. The Warriors have been off to a great start. They've beaten some quality teams in the first couple of games, specifically beating the Lakers in the uh, season opener, and then they beat the Clippers as well. And this is despite the fact that Klay Thompson is still rehabbing from that torn Achilles that he suffered from last year. But we will see Klay Thompson return at some point in the season. We just don't know what the timetable on his return is yet. But still, i got to believe that the Warriors still think that their championship aspirations are alive and well with how good they've started off this season at 4-0. So, Kevin, I'm going to pose this question to you. Just how good do you think this Warriors team can be this upcoming season? I mean, if we're being honest, like like the cameras, the, put the camera, the cameras on me. Cameras, it's on me. It's it's on you. Okay, listen, everybody. We did this last season. Wardell Curry is that dude. Okay, we have talked about this, ladies and gentlemen. He is just a man on a mission to continuously prove his doubters wrong. Call me a bandwagon or second fiddle or whatever. Like this, the, the, the guy showed it last year alone. He was able to get them within a playoff berth. His boy comes back in a few months. James Wiseman comes back in a few months. And they're 4-0. and And Steph is damn near averaging 30 already. His worst game of the season was a triple-double against the Lakers. If that's your worst game, I think that we're in for another MVP type of season. I understand we're... Five games, six games for some teams into the season. I'm not going out there on a limb and saying that he's going to win the MVP or anything. I'm just saying if Steph did this with basically nothing last year, who's to say this is not going to get significantly better when his running mate is back, their rookie of the year candidate before he was injured is back, and then everybody's just rolling on a mess. Andre Iguodala's sitting there back on the squad. Jordan Poole's having a good year. Obviously, Andrew Wiggins is playing up to par. Draymond Green plays his role as the vocal leader on this team. It is going to be an interesting NBA season now that the Warriors have officially reloaded. And the only other superstar, because he was left out of the NBA's top 75, is coming off of two major injuries. So technically right now, Steph is by himself yet again. He's out to prove it. The championship window has not closed. I am not shocked that they're 4-0, and I'm completely supportive that I think that they're only only going to get better as the season progresses. I have to be honest, and I do want to kick it back to a segment that we had a couple days ago where I was of the mindset that the Warriors championship window was closed. I just thought that I don't know if this team would have ever risen to the level that they had with the amount of success that they had with Steph, Clay Thompson, and 
KD when they were really on that great stretch in the middle of the 2010s. And I have to be honest, though. They've been off to a great start this year. 4-0 start. They've beaten some quality teams in the Lakers and the Clippers so far. You know, they're, they're being tested by the Grizzlies. You know, that'll be a good game. That'll be a good marker, you know, five games into the season. But, Kevin, it's like you said. It's just, Steph is just a machine. I mean, the guy is averaging 29 points a game already. And he's shooting 43% from the field. And he's shooting 40% behind the three-point line. I imagine those numbers are going to fluctuate throughout the year. But it's really just more of the same from Steph. Really, the thing that I'm going to focus on with Golden State, though, is everybody else other than Steph. Are these guys going to be able to step up? I'm talking about guys like Andrew Wiggins, Draymond Green, uh, Kavon Looney, Jordan Poole, Damian Lee. You know, these are the guys that are going to have to be absolutely huge for this team moving forward. And I will say this. One guy that I really kind of want to point out so far is Jordan Poole. Jordan Poole is having a solid start to the season. And if they can get him rolling in the early stages of the season, that's going to bode well for them when they hit the middle stretch of the season and getting towards the latter stages of the year when we transition into 2022. So I look at Klay Thompson coming back. That's going to be a major factor on whether or not this team could be viable for championship contention. I'm of the mindset that we're going to see a lesser version of Clay on the defensive side of the ball. Because look, when you have an ACL tear and an Achilles back-to-back years, his mobility is definitely going to be in check. And I don't think he's going to be that dominant two-way player that he used to be before both of those injuries. I still think on the offensive side of the ball, oh, he's going to be phenomenal. He's going to be lighting it up still because he's really just kind of a catch. He's just really just catch-and-shoot type of guy. And I still think he's going to be extremely viable behind the three-point line. But it really is kind of dependent on how well Clay responds to coming off of those injuries. If he plays extremely well, I do think that they can compete for a possible title this year. If they don't, if he doesn't return to that, that Clay expectation that we have for him this upcoming season or this when he, when he comes back, I think it throws it into doubt. Because like you're in a log jammed Western Conference with teams that are looking to make a name for themselves. Look, the Suns got to the NBA Finals last year, and I imagine they're feeling a little bit bitter about how things went down in that Milwaukee series. You got Denver. Denver has the former MVP in Nikola Jokic, and you get Jamal Murray back at some point when he comes back from his ACL rehab. When you look at teams with the Lakers, the Lakers they got bounced out of the playoffs last year early. They've had some injuries early on, and they are an older roster, but I imagine they're going to be in the mix with it as well. So, yeah, I think the Golden State could definitely work themselves into that scenario, maybe alongside like the Clippers too. But to me, I'm putting a lot of emphasis on Clay here because I don't think that Steph's going to be able to carry this team to a... He's not going to carry that team anywhere close to a finals appearance by himself. Clay is the X factor in my mind here because if Clay is cooking... Oh, then yeah, you could pretty much open the doors as far as their championship contender, their championship contention goes. But I'm of the mindset that we are going to see a diminished Clay, and I hate saying that because I love Clay. Clay's a great player. It's just, bro, those injuries—they're just the worst ones that you can get. An ACL and an Achilles—that is tough to come back from. But as far as how good this team is, oh, this team's off to a very good start. These role players are stepping up in a huge way for them. It's just, I got to see what this team looks like when Clay comes back. If he plays well, 
yeah, this team could be a force to be reckoned with. But time will kind of tell on that one. But I got to say, great start, and hopefully it continues for Golden State moving forward. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely just happy to see that, you know, it wasn't really like a fluke thing for Steph that he had one of those crazy years or crazy percentages or whatever. I mean, it's just shown he's going to continue to do what he's doing, whether Clay comes back or not, hopefully again, that he does. Um, but when he does, I don't think people understand the significance of like how you scheme defensively in a basketball game. If you know that you have to pick Steph up from half court, let's say, or even a full court because Steph has been known to pull from the logo, you now have to worry about your defense now being stretched and, and far apart because you basically are leaving a box. If you're playing man, you're going to have to worry about the off-ball screens that are going to be run through Clay and Steph. And I mean, are you going to come over and, and, and double Steph and leave open Clay? I mean, I don't think people understand. When you can double one person and not have to necessarily worry about others, like people are okay with letting Jordan Poole beat them. People are okay with letting Andrew Wiggins and freaking, um, what's his name, Otto Porter Jr. beat you. You do not want to leave Clay unmanned. You do not want to have to worry about a half-court set at offense in which both of them are running through consistent screens set by Kavon Looney, James Wiseman, and Draymond Green. They are very, very, very smart. Steve Kerr runs a very efficient and fluid offense for this team. And Steph can move with and without the ball. And we all know that he's one of the better facilitators in the league when he gets it going. So the Warriors have a great chance at making some noise in this NBA season and obviously, they're doing it early on without two of their better players. So when they get back, we'll see what happens. We'll see if it continues. But my prediction is, put your seatbelt on, ladies and gentlemen. Warriors are about to come and run this. They're about to run this NBA season into the ground real quick. And by into the ground, I mean ruin the chances of a lot of teams making some noise. Oh, you really think so, huh? You Dude, to that. I, I'm, it, the proof's in the pudding. The kid did it. Last year with no one. And they, they look better than they did last year. And all they did was legitimately go and bring Andre Iguodala back. And they just, and they, what, what they got? They got, they got Andre, they got Otto Porter Jr. It's the same team. Yeah. Yeah. It, but the, the, what do you, same coaching staff. It, 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 it's like I mentioned, though. It's those role players. I'm talking about like Andrew Wiggins, Draymond Green, and Jordan Poole. Like those three in particular. Those guys, you know, they got to show me that they could recapture that championship type play. And so far this season, I think they've done very well. And really, I think Jordan Poole has really kind of been really kind of like the biggest role guy that's that stepped up far beyond any sort of expectation that I had for him coming into this season. So you got to give Jordan Poole a lot of credit. I just got to see how Clay comes back. If Clay comes back and he, bro, if he's hitting shots, bro, yeah. y'all better watch out, man. Yeah, y'all better watch out. Man, it's just that I don't have a lot of faith in that because, dude, with an ACL Those injuries and Achilles, are detrimental, the, the, dude, bro. And you know, and Clay's not a. I don't want to say that Clay's a spring chicken anymore. Like the guy is not, you know, in his mid twenties. I mean, the guy's kind of getting into his what is he like, early thirties? Maybe maybe thirty one. Maybe. So I'm not saying that he can't bounce back from that because, I mean, we saw KD last year coming off an Achilles tear and it looked like he didn't miss a beat. So, and that, and that's with KD being more of a ball dominant player. 
I mean, you could, and Clay's kind of been like that, kind of like that Ray Allen type shooter where you just catch and shoot. So hopefully for him, he just, he smoothly transitions back into the role that he had before the injuries. And he just keeps knocking down shots like he always has. And everybody knows Clay is the hottest shooter in NBA history. Once he gets hot, bro, it's like that rim is like 10 yards wide. Like he can't miss. Like he's just that effective of a shooter. Game six Clay is real. But it's whether or not that he could bounce back from these injuries. I hope that he can. can. And I would love to see that because, man, if Golden State's in the mix at the top of the Western Conference this year, man, those Western Conference playoffs are going to be exciting, dude. And they were all, dude, they're already really fun to watch. Despite the fact that Golden State did take a back seat last year. You throw Golden State back into the mix, bro, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. NBA season's already looking good, man. Like we already talked about, we're about a week or two in, and, and we're talking about freaking major impact and playoff runs. Isn't it amazing? Oh, dude, like I love it. Like, you kidding me? That's what makes it fun. And, this is amazing. Uh, this is great. I, I'm just not happy about the fact that the Lakers are fuck. I don't want to say it. Yeah, hey, hey, hey. Like, we just made 100 different points, and we're, we're four or five games in. I mean, your boy had a quadruple double, but we also predicted the potential that could ca- come from this, but you're playing without your best player, so let's Listen, leave it at that. I just, Mello, you're one of the best shooters of all time. All time. Wide open three. Straight away three. Airballs it. Airballs it. It wasn't even close. Yeah, it's kind of bad. It's kind of bad. Bro, like, like, really? Really? Just like, I don't even get paid to play in the NBA. At least I can hit the rim. Like it's early. I'm not gonna get too mad about it. You got me all riled up here. God damn it. You got yourself riled up. It wasn't me. I know. Uh, it's it's gonna Lakers, be okay, they, man. The Lakers, they give me migraines, man. LeBron's already out, AD's already hurt. These dudes look old. They're already Russell fighting Westbrook. on the sidelines. Russell Westbrook had ten turnovers. Like quadruple double, baby. What a historic number that was. Just like, bro, long season. Hopefully, they turn it around. But bro. They'll figure it out. It's frustrating, Kevin. It's frustrating. I, I believe you. They'll figure it out. It's okay. All right. So, with that said, we will transition into the last segment that we have for our episode for you guys. And that is going to be the World Series. Um, I think Kevin and I, I, I think we have somewhat failed in our ability to kind of keep up with the MLB topics throughout this playoff stretch. But um, we are going to rectify that wrong, and we are going to focus on what is turning out to be a pretty compelling World Series so far. So as it currently stands, the series is tied 1-1 between the Houston Astros and the Atlanta Braves. Uh, The Game 3 matchup between both teams will go back to Atlanta and for games three, four, and five, the games will be played in Atlanta. Kevin, this has been quite a matchup that we've seen so far. Really a, a matchup where we've seen the bats really come alive for both teams. We saw Atlanta really pop off in game one, got off to a hot start, and literally the first at bat, and carried it out through the entirety of game one. And then you see Houston just bounce back in a huge way with their bats in game two. I believe they won 7-2 to two in, in that game two matchup. So, Kevin, when you take account of the series and where it's at right now, just who do you have a little bit more faith in as the series progresses? 
Well, obviously, I'm anti-Houston. So, I mean, I, you, you could literally put a high school baseball team in front of me against the Astros, and I'm going to cheer my ass off for them. So, it's weird because the Braves are doing something I don't think anybody in the MLB saw happening. I mean, let's be completely honest. Neither of us are baseball connoisseurs like we are in the NFL and the NBA. But when you looked at the NL playoff schedule, it was either the Dodgers or the, or, or the Giants, realistically, coming out of the NL. I don't think anybody, including MLB executives, saw the Atlanta Braves coming out of the NL East without Ronald Acuna and one of their best starting pitchers, if not their best starting pitcher, and taking this all the way into three games away from a World Series championship. So, I mean, hats off to the Braves organization, overcoming injuries, making sure that they're, you know, putting the doubters to sleep because they did beat the defending World Series champions in six games. That is no easy feat because the Dodgers are probably the best team on paper and every in all positions. So it's hard for me to really say who has the advantage because you can tell both offenses are just playing at such a high rate and a high level. Um, you really are looking for Atlanta to try to at least go out there and take two of the next three. If not, I mean, I would love for them to sweep the rest of this and just end the, my Missouri because the Yankees are, are fucking out of the playoffs. But again, it would make me feel good and warm inside to know that the Astros are going to be gone. But it's, it's hard, man. I mean, Jose, Jose Altuve is having a postseason for the ages. I mean, obviously, the, the Braves as a whole are just having a great postseason together as a team. Um, shout out to Charlie Morton before literally striking out Jose Altuve on a broken leg. I mean, it, it was absolutely crazy to think that he went out there and faced batters with a potential chipped fibula or whatever it is, exactly what it was. And then he legitimately, I think, snapped his leg on that curveball pitch that struck out Altuve and froze him up at the plate. So, I mean, kudos for the mental toughness that the Braves really went out there and showed. But um, if they have to put a pin on it, I, I, I want to go Atlanta just for the sheer fact that I don't necessarily have faith with the starting rotation of the Astros. Um, we also, Zach Greinke, kind of get rocked pretty much the majority of the postseason this year, and I know that he's coming up soon in the rotation if he hasn't already gone. Again, Kyle and I have not really been too in tune with this World Series. But um, I do like the way that Atlanta's kind of carrying themselves and they're showing that they can score. They haven't been in this situation in God knows how long, and they're not intimidated or scared of the Astros. Um, again, I love Dusty Baker as a manager, but to hell with the Astros, man. I, I really hope that Atlanta finds a way to carry this momentum through, take a couple of games at home, and uh, find a way to win this World Series because it would only bring joy to my heart. God, that hatred runs deep. With the, yeah, it doesn't it, it, bro? It, it runs deep. I, 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 listen, 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 listen. I'm going to just say one last thing. The fact that the ALCS were between the two most hated teams of my life when it comes to the baseball world. I j if I'm being honest with you, I don't even think I hate the Patriots as much as I hate these two baseball teams. And you know how much I hate the Patriots. My hatred really runs for Tom and Belichick more. But in terms of organizational hatred... I do not hate any other teams more than these two teams. So for them to be competing for a shot at the World Series was like, can they both lose? And people are like, Yankee fans included, oh, well, the winner is the lesser of the two evils. The Red Sox are the Yankees' most arch enemy in terms of historically, and then they also cheated. And then the Astros robbed the Yankees and so many other teams of postseason contention and a World Series championship. So it's like, I don't know who to hate more, but 
again, whoever faced them in the World Series was going to be my hero. So the hatred runs deeper than deep. I mean, I feel that. I know you speaking as a New York Yankees fan. I mean, trust me, I know at best. You've had plenty of times where I've heard you just freaking route the Houston Astros for the, the cheating scandal that they had a couple years back. But, I mean, to focus on the World Series here for a minute, I think the one thing that I've really kind of been striked by is the amount of scoring that's taking place in these two games so far. And I was coming into this World Series thinking, you know, Houston's been here before. This is something that, you know, this is not their first rodeo. Three out of the last five. With Atlanta, this is. And I thought that Atlanta would have gotten off to a slow start. You know, maybe the lights are a little bit too bright for, for them in this moment. But I have to be honest with you. I was really surprised that right out of the gates in game one, Atlanta just took it right to Houston. And the first at bat, they hit a home run. I think it was uh, Soler. Uh, Jorge Soler was the guy that um that hit that leadoff home run for Atlanta in game one. And just really what he was able to bring to the team, it just... It was just an infectious feeling because I mean, Atlanta won Game One very convincingly, and they got a great, they got a great production or they got a great game from their pitching staff. And then in Game Two, that's where you know basically the, the tables flipped, and it kind of went to what I was expecting was that Houston was going to get up. They've been here before. This is something that they're used to, and you know they they put it on Atlanta pretty well in Game Two. So, you know, with the series transitioning back to Atlanta for games three, four, and five, you know, really the one thing that I want to see from both teams is whether or not that their pitching staffs can play up to snuff. We've seen both pitching staffs have bad games with Houston having a bad one in game one and Atlanta having a bad one in game two. And I wonder if we're going to see kind of like these games really get tightened as you get into the later innings of the game. And meaning like, you know, we're not seeing scores, you're not seeing runs, you know, up in, above five or six runs for each team, respectively. I'm talking like, you know, games where you're going to see more of a pitching battle where you get into like the seventh, eighth, eighth inning, it's only like two to one or maybe like three to two or hell, even like one to zero. So that's really going to be the main focal point moving forward for me is whether or not that both of these pitching staffs can kind of get it together. Because when I look at Houston, you always have to account for Altuve. Altuve is one of the most most clutch hitters that we've seen in recent memory for Houston. And not only that, you also have to worry about guys like Carlos Correa and Yuli Gurriel. These guys have been here before, and they've been able to rise to the expectation, or rise to the occasion, excuse me, when the moment matters the most. When it comes to Atlanta, Atlanta's kind of new to this. But I do think that they have the personnel to go out there and make hits and make plays happen. You know, you got Jock Peterson. Jock Peterson, solid player for them. You got Jorge Soler. He has shown in this series to make big plays when it matters the most. And also Freddie Freeman. So, you know, I think both teams, man, they got great players, you know, when it comes to hitting. It's just whether or not what pitching staff is really going to make the biggest impact moving forward. If I have to pick between one team or the other, I'm going to slightly favor Houston just because of the experience that they have. And in a World Series matchup, that matters. Atlanta, this is cut, this is new for them. But they have shown me that in times, you know, they can play pretty well. It's just I'm going to give a slight edge to Houston here moving forward. 
You know, the next three games are in Atlanta. If Atlanta can win two out of the three, that's going to be huge for them. But I'm going to say that Houston, you know, might be a little bit of an upset because it is three away games. I think they come out of Atlanta, possibly up three, three to two. And then you go back to Houston for game six and seven, and, and you got to favor Houston in that scenario playing at home. But, you know, the, this series can get flipped on a dime off of one hit or one pitch. So time will tell, but I am going to favor Houston slightly in this matchup as we progress farther in the series. Dude, it's – well, I hate you for making that prediction. So, you know, you can go somewhere with that. And that's fine. I respect the decision. I respect the decision solely upon a, uh, objection – or excuse me, objective um, rationalization. And that, they, yeah, you know, what, whatever big syllable word I was trying to use. Um, Bro, those I'm are sorry, guys. Words. I just, those, those listen, are college listen. words right there. I just, I'm, I'm absolutely disgusted with Kyle, but he makes sense. The experience makes a very big difference, and all it takes is a run of one more game for Houston to come and go and win two in a row, and that can completely demoralize someone on their home field, especially in the setting in which the World Series and the pressure that that brings to an inexperienced team. Uh, Jock Peterson's probably the only person who's been in that particular situation because he was a part of those Dodger teams that continuously went to the World Series for the last couple of years. So um, that about wraps up our brief MLB uh, little skit slash segment because there really isn't much outside of the World Series in that field. I mean, I'd rather just kind of stay away from the Yankees in general because they're just going to cause me to be very angry. Um, update, update on the Thursday night football game. It is currently 24-21 to 21 in favor of Green Bay with about five and a half minutes to go. Whether my screen is very behind or not, Kyle, I'll let you take the floor. You know what's crazy? So I did the prediction for uh, this Packers-Arizona Cardinals game uh, on Thursday. And I remember saying that I had Arizona winning like 27-21. to 21. It would just be so messed up. If I got the score right, but got the teams wrong, because it looks like Green Bay, there's like four and a half minutes left in this game, and it looks like you know Green Bay is looking to possibly score a touchdown or at least get a field goal out of here. But bro, I'd be so pissed if if I got the score right, but the teams wrong. Because bro, I I I don't know what it is. I get the scores right for some odd reason. I don't know what it is because I always throw like a number out to Kev. It's like Kev, I said this in our episode saying like. Like Mac Jones, he's going to throw for like 300 yards or like the Cowboys are going to score like 35 points or whatever. And it's like, I, I find out like three or four days later, I'm like, oh wait, they hit the mark on what I said earlier. I'm like, bro, like I know, I know this, like it's how I do this, but hey, bro, man, it, it's... but, but bro, I, I got to say this though, to kind of focus on the game here for a second, Packers get this win on the road without their three top receiver with their top three receivers. Amen. Amen. And end an undefeated season with Arizona. That's a huge win for them, dude. That's a huge win. Well, yeah, I'm literally watching. It's first and goal, guys. Uh, 449 to go, 24 to 20 again. Like I said, Green Bay. Uh, DeAndre Hopkins is out of this game with a hamstring injury. Um, there was just a pass interference call in the end zone, so they will be at the half-yard line. Uh, in terms of Green Bay, so that'll be first and goal once again at the half-yard line coming up. But D-Hop is out, as Kyle stated. The top three receivers for the Green Bay Packers are out. Uh, are all of them on the COVID list? 
Uh, or is one of them with no, an injury? No, no, no. no. Marcus Valdez Scanling, he was out due to injury. And um, Lazard and, and Lazard and Devontae Adams, they were out for COVID. Okay. So, I mean, that just kind of shows the, uh, the legacy that Aaron Rodgers continues to hold and, you know, that reputation of, I can do it by myself. Just to kind of throw this out here, I had a late pickup in fantasy, picked up Randall Cobb, put him as my flex. He got three catches, 15 yards, and two tuts. I'll take that, bro. I'll take that. Touchdown, Green Bay. I, yeah, I think Aaron Jones got that one. I think he had a rushing touchdown. Yeah, he just did the army crawl into the end zone. It was kind of funny. So, uh, yeah, it yeah. is going to be a two-score game going into the next possession for Arizona. If Mason Crosby makes the extra point, it'll be 31-21. to 21. But we're not going to sit here and kind of drag this episode along for the sake of this game um, as much as we would like to. You know, Kyle and I are kind of tired. You know, work kind of takes its uh, its toll on people. So um, I just quickly and briefly wanted to kind of say an absolute thank you to every single person that has tuned into this channel on every platform. And I know we say this every episode, but it's different because in the last 48 hours, Kyle and I have seen the highest uptick in numbers this channel has ever seen since it's been created. We have two videos carrying us right now, and that is Kyle's annihilation of the New York Knicks fan base, and then my complete breakdown of Ben Simmons as an individual and what he said about being compared to Giannis Antetokounmpo. That video, when we started talking about making the agenda for this episode at like 8.30, was at about 1,400 views. I don't want to know what it's at now because it's just absolutely mind-boggling to know that these episodes are carrying us. We're also up six subscribers in the last two days. We were at 240 on Monday. We're at 246. So numbers in all categories, watch time, watch hours, views, subscription. I mean, anything you can think of in terms of analytical with the YouTube department, we're crushing. And it's a big homage to a lot of you guys, whether or not you are subscribers or just people that tend to tune in because you think some of our content is amusing or funny or interesting, whatever. Um, we welcome and admire everybody that's been here. So whether you've been here from the beginning or if you just started today, thank you for the support. It's been a great ride and we're just going to keep riding this wave, man, because Lord knows it's been so much fun. Yeah, I'm you know, with me, it was the opposite. I was getting freaking torched by Knicks fans the entire weekend, and then it's kind of dragged on into the week. But no, it's just, you know, the amount of support that we've gotten as a channel the last couple of days, it's been absolutely phenomenal. And we kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, we've talked about Ben Simmons a couple of times in, in regards to that video that's really kind of popped off. But no, I just thought that Kevin had a, he had a great take. And, you know, it was just, Bro, the energy that he brought in that take, I thought was phenomenal. So, and apparently it resonated with 1,600 people that have watched it so far because it's up to 1,600 views right now. So, yeah, it, I mean, it's it's been it's been crazy, bro. Like, I, there's no other way I can say it. Shit. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's like Kevin said, you know, we just appreciate you guys supporting the channel. I mean, excuse me, ex supporting the podcast. Excuse me, in any way that po in any way possible granted that oh my God, kevin i don't know how i struggle to say that but it's 11 30 yeah i know it, it's getting late but you know it's it's like it's like kevin said just you know wherever the support comes from whether it's from 
the audio platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whether it's from the YouTube side of things. You know, I know we sound like kind of a we sound like a broken record when we say this stuff, but we genuinely mean it. It's like wherever we can get the support for the podcast, we just genuinely appreciate it because I mean, to be quite honest with you, like I don't think Kevin and I were really kind of expecting like this type of output from you know the YouTube side of things in the last couple of days or so, but it's been absolutely incredible. We just thank you guys for supporting the channel in the ways that you have so far. And it's crazy because two, three weeks ago when I was gone in New York, um, we had seen an absolute increase in, in, in the audio platforms. We went from averaging about four to five plays per episode to where we're averaging 13 to 14 per episode. And I know that I had a, a, a last minute boo-boo last week and uploading a double episode on Monday morning. But the fact that both of those episodes are at six plays each is giving us an average of uh, 14 plays per, per uh, podcast audio episode. So, I mean, that shot up a couple weeks ago. Now the YouTube portion has taken a little bit of an increase as well. So, I mean, like, we're succeeding on a lot of fronts. Again, we're working on a lot of different things in the background. Kyle is working on some things, obviously, with updating the thumbnails and different uh, formats with OBS. Um, I got a couple of things coming into the works, whether or not I'm, I'm getting a specific mic, I'm looking for a specific brand. Kyle sent me a link a while back. I'm kind of leaning towards that. Um, Kyle's looking to upgrade the visuals with the camera and whatnot. Again, I know we've mentioned transitioning into TikTok. We're doing the research to figure out how to go about best practices because we understand that in that specific field, now that TikTok has the availability for five minute segments, for that, we can just do YouTube. We really want to keep it to the TikTok limited 60-second portions uh, to really have quick, whether that's bloopers, funny content, a hot take to really get people to click into the the the, uh, the social media platforms, whatever. We were also supposed to have a, a guest or two today. I know that I had mentioned that last week, but due to scheduling you know, and pretty much just life coming into the mix, uh, we were unable to bring those two gentlemen onto the podcast today, but I, I would assume... At some point down the line, when, when their schedules free up, we would definitely make sure that that does happen. But again, we're trying to improve. We're not comfortable where we are. We want to keep growing. We want to succeed. And we want to take this podcast as far as it can and then crush that plateau too. I mean, I, I couldn't have said it any better. So That should be a motivational uh, speaker. Oh, yeah. You can, get, you can pay big bucks with that too, my guy. Shit. But, Kev, is there... Anything else you need to say before we wrap this up? No, nah, man, that wraps it up. Literally can't wait to jump into the shower and uh, go to bed. Yeah, same here. But, you know, with that said, you guys, you know, once again, we just thank you guys for tuning in, whether you were listening to us or watching us on YouTube. Uh, Kevin, and I definitely appreciate the support wherever we can get it. Um, it should be a fun slate of games in the NFL. We'll definitely be paying attention to it. Uh, the World Series will continue this weekend as well. So we'll definitely stay tuned for that. And we will see you guys next week with another episode. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices. And we really appreciate your support. So keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electrocast. 
Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed.